0: If you're like most Americans, the number one thing you spend money on is your rent or your mortgage. Housing is our biggest expense. And with millions of people furloughed, laid off, and unemployed,
1: it's hard to pay. I'm unable to pay my mortgage, uh, my utilities, my daughter's college tuition.
2: Having this weight and this burden of having to pay rent for who knows how long without any income. It's a looming storm cloud over me pretty much every day.
0: And I was just starting to get money saved up and have an actual savings account again, and then boom. We're stuck in our homes, but can't afford our homes. But even before the pandemic, a lot of people were having a tough time eking out money to keep their families in a decent place to live.
2: We're entering the COVID pandemic with the biggest wealth gap that our country has seen in 100 years. If you are literally living paycheck to paycheck and then you lose that paycheck and you have nothing to fall back on, then you are in a very, very dire um, situation indeed.
0: Welcome to The Uncertain Hour. I'm Chrissy Clark, and this is our pop-up emergency season, A History of Now, where we try to make sense of this most uncertain hour when inequalities that already existed in our society are suddenly set in high relief. On this show, we've always been obsessed with the policies that affect who gets ahead and who gets left behind in America. And these questions seem particularly urgent as our cities are exploding in protest and outrage in response to some of our deepest and most long-running inequities. One place America's inequality is most evident is in where we get to live and how much it costs us. And that's what this episode is all about, housing. This week, we're going to look to history to try to understand how housing has become so unstable for so many people. We're going to look at the housing policies that were put in place as our nation emerged from other economic disasters and how that created a housing system that excluded black people and other people of color and prevented them from building the wealth that middle-class white families built. Senior producer Caitlin Esch is going to take it from here.
3: I spent some time last week talking to a woman named Vanessa Bullness.
1: I live in Oakland, California. I've been a resident since 1986.
3: I want to start with her story because Vanessa got caught up in this big change in how Americans pay for housing. What happened to her is part of this bigger story about the economic forces and policies that have made housing more expensive and more precarious. Vanessa is 61 years old. She would normally be teaching preschool right now, but the preschool where she works is closed. So she's been spending time at home writing a children's book.
1: And the name of it is um, City Birds, because <laughs> we work downtown in the city and the birds come to our um, playground every day and the kids are just fascinated by the birds. And so kind of got inspired by that. Those are the things that keep me, um, keep my mind occupied. Excited about the future, even though it could be bleak on one end. You know, I'm still excited about the possibilities, you know.
3: Vanessa writes from the home she rents with her husband, Richard.
1: It's a beautiful home. It's three bedrooms, two bathrooms.
3: On a busy street.
1: A half a block from the bus stop, which takes me to the BART. And I can take public transportation to work and back, things like that. So it's, it's convenient for us. The only thing I hate about the neighborhood is that um, people dump trash. It's just heartbreaking to see that, you know, on either side of the street, as you're walking down the street or whatever, there's trash.
3: Vanessa was furloughed from her job May 1st. She did file for unemployment. She says the state money came through pretty quickly, but she's still waiting on the extra federal money. In the meantime, she still owes rent, about $2,600 a month. What percentage of your income would you say your rent takes up? About 70%. Wow,
1: 70%. Mm -hmm.
3: Is it fair to assume that saving money is really hard?
1: Oh, can't save any money. Yeah, that's, you know, I don't even have a savings account. I just have a checking account because I don't have money to save.
3: The money Vanessa pays for housing used to go toward building equity. She used to own her own home. But she lost it to foreclosure in the aftermath of the last economic crisis, the Great Recession. She and her husband owned their home for 20 years. They raised three children in it. She operated her old business out of it, a daycare.
1: My husband had a massive stroke in 2008. And for four years, we tried to get a modification to um, lower our monthly uh, mortgage payment. But We were unsuccessful in those attempts, and so in 2012 we lost that home that we had had for like 20 years. And that's how I became a tenant here at the property that we're living in now.
3: In the eight years she's been renting the house, she's had four different landlords.
1: When we moved in in 2012, it was Waypoint Homes when we assigned the original lease. And it went from Waypoint Homes to Colony Starwood Homes to Starwood Homes and Blackstone, and now it's Invitation Homes.
3: A company that was owned by Blackstone, one of the largest private equity firms in the world, till last year, when Blackstone cashed out and sold all its shares in the company for a huge profit. And Vanessa isn't paying them rent anymore. She doesn't know when she'll be called back to work, or if she'll feel safe returning, and the bills keep coming.
1: And so I got involved with the rent strike,
3: Vanessa is a member of a racial and economic justice group called Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, or ACE. By their estimate, more than 25,000 people in California, and countless others across the country, are on rent strike. And for now, Vanessa's landlord cannot evict her. Many states, including California, have temporarily banned evictions if you lost income because of coronavirus, and local governments have expanded protections further. When I talked to Vanessa, it was late May, and those orders were about to expire in many places, and Vanessa was worried there would be a wave of evictions when people can't afford to pay back rent.
1: And I just think that if nothing is done, that's a permanent solution like rent forgiveness or cancellation. I can't even describe what the world is going to look like with thousands of people homeless. It's scary. It's a scary thought.
3: Vanessa is saving as much money as she can to try to pay back rent if she has to, but it's not enough. Is it scary to not have a buffer, like some savings that you you, know, you could live off of for a couple of months if you had to?
1: No, I can't operate in fear because that's not healthy. So I don't allow myself to be fearful. I just try to take it one day at a time. I'm the youngest of nine children and one of my sister's lives in my mother's house, and so if push comes to shove, (laughs) I can always go back home. And then we have an extended church family, so that's always been a help. Right. Your safety net is your family and your church
3: Mm -hmm. community. Yeah. I wanted to understand more about why so many people are in Vanessa's position these days paying rent to huge faceless corporations. And why does that matter? So I talked to Aaron Glantz. He's a senior reporter at Reveal and the author of a book with a very long title, Home Wreckers: How a Gang of Wall Street Kingpins, Hedge Fund Magnets, Crooked Banks, and Vulture Capitalists Suckered Millions Out of Their Homes and Demolished the American Dream. Hi, Aaron, it's Caitlin.
2: Hey, Caitlin, how's it going?
3: Good, how are you?
2: I'm okay. I'm, I'm in a closet uh, under my <laughs> stairs here in San Francisco, and my Zoom recorder is running.
3: I actually asked him to look into Vanessa's situation. But first, I asked him to explain how history and policy brought us to where we are now. I wanted to know more about how we emerged from past economic crises. So we went all the way back to the Great Depression.
2: We had, just as now, incredible unemployment. People were losing their homes. Uh, people were losing their farms. And the system of finance that we had in this country to support families was completely broken. In the 1920s um, and before, it was really, really hard for most Americans to buy homes. The 30-year fixed mortgage that we imagine today as kind of the standard, it just didn't exist. Families who wanted to buy a home uh, needed to pay cash or get loans from banks that we would consider today extremely predatory. The, the standard loan back in the day was a, a very short-term loan where you would only pay the interest month after month and then there would be what they would call a bullet payment, where you would suddenly have to pay everything at the end. And if you couldn't pay it, you would refinance to another one of these terrible loans. And that was the situation in America in the 1920s. And it's why the homeownership rate all across this country was very, very, very low.
3: So people were strapped with these bad loans that were hard to pay back. And then the Great Depression hits, which makes it even harder. So what happens next? What happens when people start to lose their jobs?
2: There was going to be a rash of foreclosures all over the country. And what Roosevelt did uh, was he stepped in and he said a nation of homeowners uh, cannot be defeated. And uh, if people owned their own home, if they had a stake in the system, you know, then they would be part of – the country, and so he created this government-run bank called the Homeowners Loan Corporation, and what it did was it bought these bad loans off of banks and then issued new good loans to consumers that those consumers were able to then pay off. And this Homeowners Loan Corporation, it saved more than a million homes. It refinanced one out of every five Uh, home loans in urban America, and it set the stage for the idea that you could buy a house and pay it off at a fixed interest rate over time.
3: The Homeowners Loan Corporation was designed to be temporary, right? It stopped refinancing mortgages after a couple of years, and it was good for a lot of people who could access it, but it also left a lot of people out, right? Basically, anyone who wasn't
2: white, The long-term impact of these programs by FDR can be seen very clearly uh, and unfortunately in our racial wealth gap. There were government inspectors who went into every neighborhood in America and literally drew lines on maps and colored neighborhoods with large numbers of people of color red, and told the banks and the homeowners loan corporation not to lend in those neighborhoods because they were hazardous. And so, you know, if you see today, there is still a massive home ownership gap between blacks and whites in this country and a massive wealth gap between blacks and whites in this country. And, And it all goes back to the fact that there was this amazing effort to help Americans own their own homes that occurred during the New Deal And it massively benefited one group of people, the white community, helped create the white middle class in this country, and left behind people of color.
3: So these programs were a real boon for white middle class wealth and home ownership, but it introduced redlining.
2: Yes, so there were government employees who went out into neighborhoods and assessed each and every neighborhood in America, and they described neighborhoods with large numbers of people of color as threatened with Negro encroachment, or infiltrated by Negroes. And if you read the narrative descriptions of some of these neighborhoods, they will note that that they had, you know, great access to transportation and good schools and were near jobs and the housing stock might have even been nice but if there were too many people of color in that neighborhood they would downgrade them to hazardous and tell banks not to lend there so this is just incredibly important to understanding how we've arrived at where we are today in terms of unequal opportunity it set the foundation that everything has been built on since
3: So policies set in place after the Great Depression helped create a racial wealth gap that still persists today. We're going to talk about the legacy of that. And we're going to look at the policies that came out of the Great Recession 80 years later, and how so many people like Vanessa, the preschool teacher, went from owning homes to renting from corporate landlords. More on that after the break. Fast forward to another crisis, the Great Recession, different from the Great Depression in many ways, but coming out of it and during it, our country's policy response towards homeowners was very different compared to the 1930s. Instead of reviving the homeowners loan corporation, the government went in a totally different direction and decided to make bankers and investors whole. How and why did the government do that?
2: During the lead up to the housing bust in 2008, we had a resurgence of the same kind of bad financial products that we had back in the 1920s. Loans with strange terms, balloon payments, people taking out one loan for 80% of the value of their house and then another loan for the down payment. So they had literally financed the whole house with no proof of income. And all these loans started to fail at the same time when property values sunk. And so the government had to intervene. But instead of Doing what it did during the Great Depression, where the government went to the banks, took the mortgages from the banks, uh, paying them pennies on the dollar, and then issued new, more affordable loans to homeowners, allowing them to stay in their homes. What the government did instead was give the banks a ton of money. And, uh, and then tell them to please be nice to the homeowners. And unfortunately, that didn't work out because 8 million Americans lost their homes.
3: Walk me through what happened next. So families are losing their homes. Their, their homes are being sold on the courthouse steps. Who's buying them?
2: What, what's happening here is it's 2008, and uh, the economy is falling apart. Homes are no longer worth as much as they were before and people are out of work. But the government is not encouraging banks to lend to other families or or issuing new mortgages like it did during the Great Depression. And so what ends up happening is that investors, vulture capitalists, come in and start buying not one house or two houses as fixer-uppers, but thousands of houses, all at once. So one of the people that I write about uh, in my book, uh, Tom Barrick, uh, who is one of Donald Trump's closest friends, he ends up acquiring more than 30,000 homes all across the sand and sun belt from California to to Georgia and Florida and turning these homes which used to be the life savings and dreams of families into rental units. And then As the properties increase in value over time during the recovery, he begins to take out gigantic loans against all of these homes together, basically pulling his money out of these homes, using them as a piggy bank, much as American families were accused of doing uh, during the housing bubble. Uh, But he's not worried because he's got people in each and every one of these homes paying more and more and more in rent every month to cover uh, his increasing debt.
3: I just think it's so interesting to understand that private equity firms, corporate landlords, are not just making money from rent, but they're taking money out of the, the properties that they own, and so they they have a lot of debt. I was reading that the share of investor-bought homes rose to an all-time high in 2018, or at least that was... The data that was available um, to 11% of homes were bought by investors, which was twice the level before the 2008 recession. So this is a trend that's continued. It, it didn't stop. It's, it's been continuing ever since.
2: And we've been seeing this trend of people with ready cash uh, buying up our homes in cities all across the country, different types of cities. So in, in Detroit, in Akron, Ohio, uh, so depressed Rust Belt cities where housing is really cheap, you have people paying one or two thousand dollars or three thousand dollars a month in rent to live in a house that a speculator might have bought with under twenty thousand dollars in cash. And so you might ask, why is it that those families who can afford that rent weren't able to buy those homes themselves? And it's because our system of finance is broken.
3: How is it broken?
2: The banks will not lend to people who want to buy homes if the homes are too cheap. So this means that if you live in a city like Akron, Ohio or Detroit, Michigan, where the housing is cheap. The banks will not finance you to buy it because they don't think they can make enough money lending to you on these uh, cheap homes. So the only people who can afford to buy them are speculators with ready cash. And then they go and charge these same families astronomical rents. And then you look at another community like San Francisco, where I'm talking to you from, and property is too expensive. For most families to buy. And so banks tell families they can't afford the loans. And so the only people who can buy the homes, again, are speculators uh, with ready cash. And so we see that both at the high end and at the low end of the economic ladder in this country, uh, you know, the banks are just not supporting families uh, who want to build equity and are instead extending credit. to large corporate landlords who then charge very high rent. Because of the lack of access to credit on reasonable terms to American families over the last decade and the behavior of these big banks, we have really seen a diminution in the ability of the American family to you know, buy a piece of the American dream by you know, putting some money down and paying back the rest of their house over time.
3: Is there any defense for investors buying up houses? Like, did it help stabilize the housing market at a time when things were really unstable? Did it prevent housing prices from falling even lower?
2: Uh, That's certainly what, you know, these corporate landlords say. They say, if we didn't come in and buy during periods of distress, the situation would have been even worse. But we had more than two options here. You know, they pretend that the only options were that the the communities across our country be allowed to degrade or that they'd be bought up, you know, wholesale by national speculators. And there were other options. And a lot of uh, good ideas were proposed. Uh, some people said, hey, let's do like uh, Roosevelt did. Let's Let's uh, have the government finance individual home buyers one at a time and p- so that they can, uh, you know, uh, pass from one family that got foreclosed on to another family that might benefit uh, from these historically low housing prices. Uh, other people said, hey, let's give these to cities to create affordable housing or to nonprofits. And All of those ideas were dispensed with by the Obama administration, which elected instead to bundle these homes together a thousand at a time and sell them off to Wall Street interests.
3: So as you point out in your book, communities of color were hit disproportionately hard by the housing crisis, lost much of their wealth, and then they lost out on the recovery. Banks issued very few mortgages when things started to get better. Why? Why?
2: Racism. We have a history of institutional racism in this country that continues today. We looked at 31 million mortgage records, and we found dozens of cities across the country where people of color were far more likely to be turned down for a loan, even when they made the same amount of money, uh, tried to take out the same size loan, and buy in the same neighborhood as their white counterparts. Banks treated them differently. And so, Having lost out so much in the in the crash of the housing bust, uh, people of color and, and their families were unable to get back in when credit started to become available. So they were far more likely to rent from one of these Wall Street landlords, which would keep raising the rent to pay off their rising debt.
3: So we entered this crisis in the long shadow of the Great Recession, a lot of people lost their houses and their wealth and, and then, therefore, their, their safety net. How did the Great Recession sort of set the table for where we are right now, the precarity of housing? Well,
2: we're entering the COVID pandemic with the biggest wealth gap that our country has seen in 100 years We have a situation right now where the top one-tenth of 1% of all Americans own as much wealth as the bottom 90%. And so if you are literally living paycheck to paycheck and then you lose that paycheck and you have nothing to fall back on, then you are in a very, very dire um, situation indeed.
3: So right now, a lot of states and cities have temporary protections Uh, in Los Angeles, tenants who've lost income because of the pandemic can't be evicted by landlords. And um, if if they can't pay rent because of the coronavirus, I think they have about a year to pay back rent. And that seems pretty good, right? I mean, but I've also heard that those protections don't go far enough or, or long enough. How do you make sense of the protections for renters and homeowners right now?
2: Well, the government has has done a good thing in giving people a little bit of breathing room. This did not happen in 2008. You know, there was no national foreclosure moratorium on any loans after the housing bust. And so people were just mowed down and families lost everything very, very fast. And banks got a ton of money while they were foreclosing. And then later on, there were investigations that proved all that happened. And so what I see happening now is an effort by Congress and and the Trump administration and, and local officials, as you mentioned as well, to hit the pause button. Right to give people a little bit of breathing room, but this is not a permanent solution. It, it's not like somebody who loses their job and has forbearance for a few months is suddenly going to be able to pay the bill when the forbearance lifts. So now we need to have a permanent solution to come on the heels of of the temporary stopgap that Congress has enacted. Do
3: you worry that what happened during and after the Great Recession will repeat itself? Is this a golden opportunity for private equity firms and, and big companies to potentially buy up more properties and expand their footprint?
2: Yeah. Yeah, this could be the same kind of crisis all over again. American families have very little to fall back on right now. Uh, We're living paycheck to paycheck, and those paychecks are disappearing. On the other hand, uh, Tom Barrack's company has $3 billion in dry powder. That's the phrase they use for money to spend during a crisis when assets are cheap. Uh, Blackstone, it has $152 billion in dry powder. So if these foreclosure moratoriums start expiring and people lose their homes, they will be ready to buy once again. And they have plenty of money and the banks will lend to them so that they can take that $152 billion and create even more money. And so uh, we could potentially uh, end up seeing a real uh, increase further In this wealth gap, out of this crisis.
0: Dry powder. What a phrase. Just the idea that private equity firms would have billions of dollars earmarked for a crisis like this is kind of stunning. It reminds me of that quote about investing the time to buy is when there's blood in the streets. I know. And it's not just homeowners who could lose here.
3: In a lot of ways, renters are in a much more precarious situation. I mean, just to come full circle, I asked Aaron to look up what's been going on with that house that Vanessa rents, the preschool teacher. And what did he find? What Aaron found when he looked at the property records was that, yes, just like Vanessa said, the house has changed hands multiple times. She's had several corporate landlords. And one of them was Tom Barrick. Who we heard about earlier, who's been a friend of President Trump. Yes, the real estate investor and owner of Colony Capital. In 2016, his company bought Vanessa's house. It was one of 30,000 homes that he owned for a time all across the
2: country. What Barrick's company does then is it goes to Deutsche Bank, and it leverages this home and a bunch of other homes that it owns uh, as part of its 30,000-home empire and gets a $500 million loan.
0: Meaning they're taking out a big loan against the value of their houses, which, as Aaron pointed out, is what homeowners were accused of doing in the run-up to the Great Recession. But
3: when homeowners
0: did it, they used the money to fix the roof or pay for college, whereas
3: Aaron says a corporate landlord might put that money towards another business venture or a big payout. And here's something else Aaron found. The house that Vanessa rents has appreciated in value since she started renting it a lot.
2: Now today, this house, which sold for $174,000 in 2012, according to zillow it's worth more than seven hundred thousand dollars so who got the benefit of that price appreciation over the time it could have been a family it could have been vanessa she's been making payments all this time right it's just that she doesn't get any equity from any of those payments it's all gone to these games uh, played by these corporate landlords
0: By the way, we checked back in with Vanessa, and she's notified Invitation Homes, the company that owns her house, that she has no income and can't pay rent right now. They said they'd be willing to work with her. But in a moment like this, she says she thinks her rent should be all out forgiven. That this time, everyday people, not corporations, should get a bailout. That's it for this episode of The Uncertain Hour. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a story about what happens when you've lost your housing altogether and you end up sheltering in place in a homeless shelter.
1: It was always the case, but now so more than ever. Like, it's sort of counterintuitive to what everybody's hearing. But in this environment, you are safer not staying at home.
0: More about that next time on The Uncertain Hour we love hearing from you so please keep it coming your questions about this stuff and your personal stories about how the coronavirus is affecting you or your job and your ability to make ends meet are you having trouble paying your rent or mortgage if you're still working do you feel safe get sick pay or maybe you're a gig worker or a temp worker wondering what kind of protections you have email us the address is marketplace.org. We'd love to answer some of your questions and play some of your stories later this season. And if you love the show, share it with a friend. Review us on your favorite podcast app. Spread the love. It really helps keep us going. Our show is produced by Caitlin Esch, Chris Julin, and Peter Balanon-Rosen. Our editor is Catherine Winter. Our engineer is Daniel Ramirez. Our intern is Daniel Martinez. Our digital team is Tony Wagner and Erica Phillips. Sitara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand at Marketplace. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. And I'm your host and Marketplace senior correspondent, Chrissy Clark.